Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover Acts 24, verses 1 through 21. We will see Paul taken down to Caesarea on the coast, and we will see him examined by the Roman procurator there, a guy named Felix. Now, what is our context? If you recall, Paul arrives in Jerusalem after the third journey in a 12-day period. Well, he goes to see James, the apostle at the Jerusalem church. And James says, you're going to have trouble with the Jews. They don't understand what you've done, Paul. So you need to take four brethren who are finishing a vow, probably a Nazarite vow. Go pay for their purification expenses, the sacrifices they need to purify themselves in the temple. Paul went down there, minding his own business, not even evangelizing, not doing anything, just going down there to pay a vow. And then some Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, who knew what Paul had done with the Gentiles in Ephesus. He had preached to the Gentiles. So they come and they start accusing Paul of all kind of things. Paul is speaking against the law. He's speaking against the temple. He's blaspheming God and all this kind of stuff. And so the Jews start a riot, the Jews in the temple there. Claudius Lysus, the Roman commander in charge of the peace of Jerusalem, rescues Paul almost flogs him erroneously, not knowing he is a Roman citizen, gets scared of that, and says, oh, I'm packing you out of here. I'm taking you, sending you to, well, first he sent him before the Sanhedrin. Paul started a riot before the Sanhedrin when he when he said that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. That divided the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees not believing in the resurrection. After that big uproar, Paul rescues Paul again. Lysias rescues Paul again, puts him under custody. Plus, there was a plot with 40 Jews to kill Paul on the way to the Sanhedrin for a second meeting, which Lysias never allowed to take place because he knew Paul would be getting killed, a Roman citizen under his watch, so he sends Paul, he he shuffles the hot potato on out to Caesarea to let Felix take care of it, and that's where we are now in Acts 24, starting in verse 1. After five days, Ananias the high priest came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullius. That means after five days after Lysias sent back to Jerusalem and said, hey, We need to have some witnesses down here so I can figure out what's going on. And so after five days, after Lysias sent for the accusers to come appear before him, Ananias, the high priest, does come down. He comes down with some elders. That means elders in the Sanhedrin. There were 71 elders in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And a lawyer named Tertullus, probably a Roman lawyer that he had hired for his oratorical ability, now, we need to be careful not to confuse this Ananias with Annas, the ex-high priest, who was still called high priest at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. That happened around A.D. 30. We are now in A.D. 58 or so. It's different, and his name is similar, but it's not the same Ananias. This is the same Ananias who, a few days previous, when Paul was back in Jerusalem, and he was called, sent to the Sanhedrin by Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, and Ananias ordered Paul to be struck, after which Paul said, you whitewashed wall. And then he sort of quasi-apologized when he says, oh, I didn't know you were the high priest. But anyway, this is the same high priest that came down. And notice that a big shot is coming. This is no small matter to the Jews. This is big stuff because Christianity is spreading all over the place amongst Jews. This is the same Christianity that they had planned to snuff out by executing the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ, and we know how well that worked out for them, don't we? So he came down with some of his fellow elders, and he hired a lawyer. He brought a lawyer named Tertullus. Now, that lawyer is probably a Roman because of his name, is Roman Tertullus. That's a Roman name. 
the Greek word is actually not really a lawyer, but an orator, because if, as is well known by people who read ancient Greek history, the Greeks loved to hire flowery orators to defend themselves in lawsuits. Their lawsuits were held before the Penix, before the whole assembly, the ecclesia, and there's lots and lots of people in that ecclesia, and so you really have to have use rhetoric. In fact, they would hire teachers of rhetoric, sophists, to teach them how to do oratory to sway the bob, or excuse me, the crowd, the democratic assembly, to, to sway them in a lawsuit. So this is kind of who they hired, and we'll see here. Tertullus is going give, give to his, do his flowery best for Felix in just a minute. Now a time note here. Luke says in verse 1, after five days, that's probably after his coming to Caesarea, which would be just enough time, as the NIV Study Bible points out, for a messenger to go from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Get, get yourself up here. Get, get, get me some witnesses. And then the Sanhedrin would have to appoint representatives of the Sanhedrin, and then the appointees would have to make their return journey to Caesarea, the appointees being Ananias and some of the elders. Then they would have to hire that lawyer, too. That's about right. That's about five days' worth. Now, some disagree on that time. Note some. The NIV Study Bible and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the five days, the after five days refers to the time after Paul departed from Jerusalem under armed guard, and so... It would be then, Adam Clark says it's after five days, five days after Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, which was even further back. It doesn't really matter. I, I think John Gill says it was five days after his coming to Caesarea. Now, why did Ananias hire a Roman lawyer, if indeed he was Roman? We think so because of the name. NIV Study Bible says he was possibly a Roman. Jameson Fawcett Brown thinks that, yes, it was a Roman. Well, a Roman is trained to deal with courts where Latin was used, and this is a Roman court. Perhaps Latin was going to be used there. A Roman is more likely to be familiar with Roman court procedures. But Adam Clark says he thinks he's a Roman proselyte to Judaism, even with that Roman name. The NIV Study Bible says maybe he was a Hellenistic Jew, and he would be familiar with the procedures of a Hellenistic court, a court that's not in Jerusalem. I don't know whether they use Greek in this court or Latin. I don't know. But at any rate, it makes sense that they would hire a lawyer to help them out. Now, why did Ananias come down to Caesarea? Well, there were two reasons. Some are, some You could categorize these reasons as offensive and defensive. Going on the offense, they wanted to get Paul condemned. But they also had things to worry about defensively. They could be accused of having started two riots, once in the temple and once before the Sanhedrin, which we talked about in the previous couple of chapters. That's the first thing they got to worry about. The next thing they have to worry about is to make sure they weren't implicated in the plot to kidnap Paul. John Gill says they had to know by now the plot had been discovered. It was discovered because, if you recall, Paul's nephew had told Claudius Lysias, the commander, and the commander says, okay, the Kiliarch, the Tribune, says, okay, out of town, we're not going to let you get killed by these assassins, and the Sanhedrin had to, most probably were involved in that plot. They probably heard the offer by the assassins and said, yeah, good job. Bring him to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, and you kill him on the way. We'll get rid of this guy. They knew they were guilty, and so they had to worry about getting themselves in trouble as well as getting Paul in trouble. We go to verses 2 through 4 in Acts 24. When he was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him. That's Paul. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him, accuse Paul, and said, since we enjoy great peace because of you, and that you is referring to Felix, since we enjoy great peace because of you, Felix, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation by your foresight, we acknowledge this in every way 
and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. However, so that I will not burden you any further, I beg you in your graciousness to give us a brief hearing. Well, you can hear Elmer Gantry here. This is Eddie Haskell. This is sucking up time. This is that flowery Greek oratory that Greek lawyers like to use. And that was the way it was expected to introduce a speech before a judge. John Gill calls it, quote, a farce, mere artifice, and wretched flattery. Adam Clark says, quote, his oration has been blamed as a weak, lame, and imperfect. And yet perhaps few with so bad a cause could have made better of it. In other words, he's saying, well, he was flowery. But he needed to be because he didn't have a case. The, the, the particulars that he, the substance of his case was indefensible, basically, and so he had to be flowery. Now, Tertullus said that Felix had given great peace to the Jews. Now, here's what NIV Study Bible says Felix had done during his six years in office. We'll give credit where credit is due. He eliminated bands of robbers under a man named Eliezer, according to John Gill and Adam Clark. He thwarted organized assassins. He went against the Sakari, the assassins. And in fact, he crushed a movement led by an Egyptian, which is mentioned in Acts 21:38. Claudius Lysias mentioned this when he first encountered Paul. And he asked Paul, aren't you the Egyptian who raised a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? That revolt was put down. And Mr. Felix here is the guy that did it, was in charge of the uh, of the of the operation that got rid of these assassins. So yes, he did. He, he brought peace to Israel. However, as the NIV study Bible and John Gill and Adam Clark say, he was a lousy man, a bad guy. His overall record was not good. In fact, he was recalled by Rome two years later because of misrule. This is about 58 AD. He was recalled about AD 60, 59 or 60 or so. John Gill says his government was attended with cruelty and avarice and that he connived at the murder of Jonathan, the high priest and that he pillaged many of the inhabitants of Caesarea, robbed them. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. He is well known from his own historians and from Josephus to have been not only a very bad man, but also a very bad governor. He was mercenary, oppressive, and cruel. As we'll see later in verse 26 in our next audio, we will see Felix listening to Paul, hoping to get a bribe from Paul. He was mercenary. The Jews eventually brought proof of his misdeeds to the Emperor Nero, and if not for the influence of Felix's brother, Pallas, Felix would certainly have been ruined in the eyes of the Romans. Pallas was, Pallas was his brother. They were slaves, Pallas and Felix, and they both rose to high places in the Roman Empire, which is kind of an interesting story. Pallas was like the chief executive officer of the, or the, the, the administrative, chief administrative assistant, if you will, of the Roman emperor. He was a big shot. And as a result of that, Felix thought he could get away with all the crap that he was getting away with. So he did. I guess he did. he got relieved of his office though in AD 60, and uh, because of his misdeeds. That was two years later after he kept Paul under house arrest for two years. Now Tertullus says that Felix has done a lot of reforms for the benefit of the Jewish nation. The NIV Study Bible says his, Felix's reforms and improvements are hard to identify historically. So. Maybe that was just a bunch of empty bluster, empty flattery, I don't know. We go to verse 5, Acts 24. For we have found this man, this is Tertullus continuing, for we have found this man, Paul, to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this was a serious charge against Paul. To agitate, to excite dissension in the empire was treason against Caesar. 
as the NIV Study Bible points out. Paul was, in effect, being charged with a capital crime, and he was entirely innocent of that. It was his enemies who caused the riots, not him. But Paul, as a Jew, was particularly vulnerable because the Jew, Jews, in fact, as John Gill points out, the Jews were very prone to riot. They loved to riot. They rioted all the time. And so here Paul is being accused of starting a riot, of being an agitator. And remember, there were two riots in Paul in Jerusalem involving Paul, the one before, it, before the temple mob and the one before the Sanhedrin. And you notice that Tertullus didn't just stick to the problems of dissension and revolt, uh, not revolt, but uh, riot in Jerusalem. He mentions the, the agitation of the Jews throughout the Roman world because Paul had gone everywhere preaching the gospel. And he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, sect is the Greek word, a Greek word which means a faction, a party. It doesn't have the, it didn't have back then the negative connotations that it has now. You know, heresy, sect, it sounds, it sounds bad. You want to call somebody and get them upset, say they're a member of the sect. Like, for example, you say, if you say that a member of the Mormon religion is a member of a Mormon sect, they get upset because it's pejorative. But So there wouldn't be a pejorative flavor to this before Felix. However, there it could have struck Felix wrongly or unpleasantly because to be a leader of a religious sect without Roman approval was contrary to Roman law. And Paul was guilty of that because the Christians were not official religio licita, I think they say it. Uh, what did they say? Illicit religion, a legal religion. Only the Jews were, not the Christians. So Tertullus was clever to bring that up, actually, to call him a leader of the sect. Notice he said, though, that he was a rig leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's trying to, point, to distinguish out Paul and his Christians from the rest of the Jews because he had to be careful if... Felix thought that the Jews, in general, were guilty of riots. Well, that could include Tertullus's client, Ananias, and the Sanhedrin, because they were Jews, too. I mean, it's within the realm of possibility. The Roman officials could say, well, look, all you Jews always fight with each other. We're going to get you all. So Tertullus is trying to distinguish Paul out from the mass of Jews. He said he was an agitator among all the Jews. He's trying to say most of the Jews were peaceful, but then he tried to stir up the Jews, so we're distinguishing him as an agitator from all those peace-loving Jews. We go to verse 6. Tertullus continues, He, Paul, even tried to desecrate the temple, so we apprehended him and wanted to judge him according to our own law. Now notice, the original charge before Paul was he desecrated the temple. Now it's he tried to desecrate the temple. Now it's attempted desecration. The NIV Study Bible points that out. Let's, if we look back at Acts 21-28, this is when the Jews of Asia, probably from Ephesus, came into the temple area shouting, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches everywhere, everyone everywhere against our people, our law in this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. That charge was not attempted desecration. That was a charge that Paul had defiled the temple and profaned the holy temple, which Paul absolutely had not done. All he had done was gone into the temple as a Jew, with his four Jewish buddies who were finishing their vow and had to offer sacrifices, and, and Paul paid for it, and they were going to the temple, going through legal stuff. He wasn't even witnessing. He wasn't even talking about Jesus in the temple. He just went in there to perform a vow. So that's the first thing. Tertullus is twisting the facts. 
changing the charge. That's why in legal proceedings you usually have it written down in the summons and complaint. You can't do that. But I guess things weren't as tight and proper and legal as they should be. And so it says, we apprehended him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Really? We apprehended him? I think it was Claudius Lysias that apprehended Paul. We wanted to judge him according to our law. No, that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to take Paul and kill him without a fair trial. We read in Acts 23.10, And when the dissension became violent, we see here that the Sanhedrin had violently laid hands on him when Paul was before the Sanhedrin. And when the dissension became violent, violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by three and bring them into the barracks. Does that sound like the Sanhedrin apprehended Paul? As if he were a writer? No. Claudius Listius apprehended Paul because the Sanhedrin was about to kill him. They were the ones that started the dissension, and we wanted to judge him according to our law. Of course, the Romans would let the Jews judge religious matters. And, of course, Tertullius can't bring that up. He can't bring up religious stuff. He's got to bring up civil order stuff because that's the only thing that the Romans would adjudicate. Now, again, when Tertullius says Paul tried, tried to desecrate the temple, desecration of the temple is a serious charge. The Romans allowed the Jews to put to death any who profaned their temple. Now, I have discovered that it is a big historical problem exactly what the relationship between the Jews and the Romans were illegally, what cases the Jews were allowed to try, and what cases the Romans were. For example, the Jews said, we can't kill Jesus, so uh, the, you Romans are going to have to do it. And then, but the, but the Jews did kill Stephen. Well, was that a mob action? Was that legal? You know, it's very complicated. But according to Adam Clark, the, the Romans would allow Jews to put to death any who profaned the temple because that was kind of an exception to the general rule. They would let capital punishment be executed in that extreme case, and Paul was accused of that. We go to verses 7, 8, and 9 in Acts 24. But Lysias the commander came and took him from our hands with great force. In other words, we had him and Lysias took him. Was that really true? No, it was not true at all, as I'll show you in a minute. But Lysias the commander came and took him from our hands with great force, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern all these things we are accusing him of. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were so. That's well, I, I didn't say Tertullus is still speaking here. And then the Jews joined in their lawyers, Tertullus, and said, yes, 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 Tertullus is speaking the truth. Now, let's look at this charge that Lysias, the commander, took him from our hands. Let's see what happened in Acts 23, verse 27. Claudius Lysias, in his letter to Felix, says, Felix says this to Felix. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them... I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Now, so the Jews are saying that Lysias violently, with great force, grabbed Paul away from us, the Sanhedrin, which was prepared to, to, to give a just and honest verdict on Paul's activities. And this, this nasty military guy, without authority, came and jerked him away from us and took him to you. And we think this is bad. That's basically what they're saying. Now, Claudius Lysias also twisted the facts in his letter to Felix, but in this aspect, he did not twist the facts. Felix did rescue Paul when Paul was about to be killed by the Sanhedrin. So you see, Tertullus and the Jews who are agreeing with Tertullus are twisting the facts against Paul. It didn't have any effect, by the way, because Felix never did condemn Paul. Now, we have a textual variant here. The Homo Christian Study Bible actually leaves out 
parts of verses 6 and 7, and wanted to judge him according to our law. This is referring, let me, let me go back to verse 6. Tertullus is talking to Felix, and he says that Paul wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysias the commander came and took him from my hands with great force, commanding his accusers to come to you. Well, that verse is left completely out of the NIV. They didn't like that textual variant there. The Homo Christian Study Bible put it in brackets. So that's a questionable manuscript authority there. So if they're twisting the words, again, maybe they didn't. Maybe it's not in the original text. But they did enough. They did enough kangaroo court activity before Felix to make up for that exoneration, if indeed they can be exonerated by that not being in the text. So Tertullius says, by examining him yourself, you will be able to discern all these things. Well, no, Felix examined, and he was not able to determine all those things. He never condemned Paul. Notice how Tertullius says that Lysias, the commander, commanded his accusers to come to you. Lysias commanded his accusers to come to you. In other words, what this what the Jews are saying here is, we were going to judge Paul fairly. And this bad man, Lysias, came and commanded Paul to go to you and took him out of our hands. That's kind of how they're trying to spin it. Trying to act like they were judging a religious matter fairly and justly until the Romans pulled rank and crossed over the line, their jurisdictional boundaries, and got you involved in this, Felix. You shouldn't be involved in it. Turn him back over to us. We'll take care of him. We go to verse 10 in Acts 24. When the governor motioned to him to speak, that's Felix, motioned to him, Paul, to speak, Paul replied, Because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. Now, Paul was polite to Felix, and he stated that Felix had been a judge for six years, and that was it. He didn't flatter him. He didn't go on and on with all the great reforms you've done, all the pieces you've done. He just was very polite. He didn't involve in all that flowery oratory that lawyers like to use back then. No hypocrisy here. Now, how many years had Felix been a judge? Many years for the nation. Gill says 13. Gill says that some people say it's 10. Adam Clark says 6 or 7. So does Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Gill Clark was citing Josephus. I think the NIV Study Bible, I read somewhere else, I think they said 6 years. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that Felix had been there for a long time. And why did Paul mention that? Well, if Felix had been governor so long, why hasn't he heard of any Pauline sedition? Why has he not heard of any riots instigated by Paul? All that time, you've never heard of me. I haven't been causing any trouble. And since I haven't been causing any trouble before, I very likely have not caused any problem in the last 12 days. Verse 11 of Acts 24. You are able to determine that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Now that 12 days could refer from the time that Paul went from Caesarea at the end of the third journey to Jerusalem, or it could mean since Paul actually set foot in Jerusalem, not from Caesarea, but from the time he was in Jerusalem. Well, it doesn't really matter. Gill says from the time he left Caesarea, James of Fawcett Brown says since 12 days since Paul uh, set foot in Jerusalem till the time that he's now speaking before Felix. But the point is, is he hadn't been there that long, how could he have stirred up so much trouble in 12 lousy days? As John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all point out, that was his point. 12 days, and I here I am upsetting the whole Roman Empire in 12 days. There, 12 days is, there's not enough time in 12 days to engage in disputations, to organize a sedition. And you notice, Paul says, what was my purpose in coming up to Jerusalem? 
to worship. I was minding my business as a Jew, worshiping in the Jewish temple, and here these guys accuse me of all this dissension and riot. Acts 24, verses 12 through 13, Paul continues, Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Well, obviously Paul wasn't causing a riot, but Paul also went even further than that, kind of like an a fortiori argument. He says, not only did I not cause a riot, I wasn't even talking with anybody. I wasn't even evangelizing for Jesus Christ. I was just minding my own business, helping four Jewish brethren perform a vow in the temple by paying for their sacrifices and getting them cleared with the priest. That's all I was doing in verse 13. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. Now notice how Paul is putting the burden of proof where it should be. Burden of proof is always on the prosecution. Paul is on the defense. The defendant never has the burden of proof to prove that they're innocent, at least not in our jurisprudence, and I assume it was in Roman jurisprudence also. The prosecution has to move evidence that will force the defendant then to to defend himself. So the prosecution has the burden of proof to prove that Paul was starting riots. Paul did not have the burden of proof to prove that he was not starting riots. And that makes a big difference, a huge difference. And Paul was smart to do this. We go to verses 14, 15, and 16 of Acts 24. Paul continues, and he, he says this, But this I admit to you. Now his admission here, you will notice as I read this, it's all religious stuff, all Christian stuff, all theological stuff. He's not admitting anything that would get him in trouble with the Jewish authorities. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, Paul is saying, you know, he doesn't really consider Christianity a sect of Judaism, a, a party like the sect of the Pharisees and the sect of the Sadducees. No, it's the new covenant. It's a lot bigger than a sect. So he says they call it a sect. He's not calling it a sect. Let me start over, verse 14. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. Now you notice he's identifying himself with the Jews to show that, hey, I don't hate the Jews like they claimed I, I do. I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law. Ooh, I'm not against Moses either. And that is written in the prophets. I'm not against the Old Testament prophets. Having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves. Notice he's identifying himself with the Jews. And so he's saying, well, look, if they can do it, why can't I do it? Why do I have to get accused of all kind of crimes when I'm believing the same stuff they do? Smart, smart defense here. Having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, Paul says, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now here, Paul uses the same tactic he used a couple days, five, six days earlier before the Sanhedrin when he brought up the resurrection of the dead because the Sanhedrin was mostly consisting of Pharisees, and I assume that most of the accusers who came to Caesarea were also Sadducees, and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Some of them might have been Pharisees, I don't know. But at any rate, he's using the same tactics there to, to cause dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, the word sect, as I said earlier, is the Greek word hierosine, which means heresy. And again, that has bad connotations. Now, it didn't at the time, as Adam Clark said. They called the Pharisees the sect of the Sadducees in Acts 5.17. Sadducees were called a sect, and of course that wasn't a bad thing. Here the word just means the party of, they called me a party. But the Jews were trying to use it in a negative sense. And Paul is trying to say they call it a sect. Why did the Jews try to use it in a negative sense referring to Paul? Well, Adam Clark says, well, they were already too well, already too well received sects in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
That's not to mention the Essenes, I guess. You could call say they're a sect too. Well, they didn't want another one. They didn't want another sect that was opposed to the other two sects which were accepted. So this theory goes that Paul that the Jews were marking out Paul's religion as a sect, as a school of thought, a school of religious thought, of theological thought that they did not want approved. They didn't want Paul just to identify himself with the Jews in general, saying that he worshipped the God of the fathers and believed in the prophets and believed in the law. They were trying to say, no, he believes in something aberrant that's not a sect, that's not a, an orthodox belief, and that therefore he is a sect. We've already got two sects, two parties in Jerusalem. We don't need another one that's not orthodox. Paul mentions this sect business to show that this was a religious reason that the Jews were opposing Paul because he had a variation of the Jewish belief that they didn't like. That's a religious question. That's not a civil question. And another reason that Paul and the Jews might have used the word sect in a negative sense referring to Paul is because they didn't want the Orthodox Jews to be confused with the Christian Jews. They didn't want the rabbinic Jews to be confused with the Christian Jews. So they say, look, this guy is a sect. He is a, he's different than us. But contrary to the Jews, Paul did not want to be labeled a sect because he wanted to be just considered a Jew because Jews had freedom of religion and he just wanted to be treated like all the other Pharisees and Sadducees in Israel. And so he doesn't admit to, be, to, be, to being called a sect. He says they call us a sect. They didn't want to be accused of rioting. Now let's look at the question of whether the accusing party from the Sanhedrin was mostly Sadducees or mostly Pharisees. Now, John Gill says that Paul's appeal to the resurrection shows that most of the accusing party was Pharisees, because that would show him to be ingratiating himself with the Pharisees. Excuse me, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that, and that does make sense. And the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says, says that the Pharisees' momentary protection of Paul at the riot before the Sanhedrin a few days before, five or six days before, that shows that the support of the Pharisees was quite momentary. Now, I don't agree with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown that most of the accusers of Pharisees. I have trouble believing that because, for one thing, the Sanhedrin is mostly Sadducees. And Paul could have been saying at that point, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, just to rile the Sadducees up. But now the problem with that is, as I've just finished saying that how Paul has gone to great lengths to say, hey, I serve the God of our fathers. I'm doing everything in accordance with the law and the prophets and all that kind of stuff. I'm doing everything these men cherish themselves. He's trying to ingratiate himself with the accusers. And then all of a sudden he turns on them and, and says something that's going to irritate the fire out of them, that he's preaching the resurrection. So maybe John, uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are right, that maybe the most of the people were there were Pharisees, and Paul's trying to pit the Pharisees against the Sadducees. There's another option, too, that when the Sanhedrin appointed representatives to go, why would they have not sent a balanced delegation so that all parties could be represented in their denunciation of Paul before Felix? I suspect that's really what happened here is, and this is all guessing and speculation, the NIV Study Bible says that when Paul mentions that resurrection again, he's he's resorting to the same tactics that he used before the Sanhedrin several five or six days before to divide and conquer. At the very end of this, in verse 16, you notice that Paul once again appeals to his blameless conscience. That's to me that's interesting because you appeal to a conscience. That's a subjective thing. That's not necessarily going to convince other people objectively. It's like when 
somebody says, well, I, I really, I really didn't think I was cheating there when I looked on my, when I got my classmate to help me write this paper. I thought they were just helping me out. And I always looked at that and I thought, I said, well, but the problem is the word, <laughs> your paper's word for word what your classmate said, and I don't care about your conscience. And I, that's kind of the way I look at that generally, but this is not the first time Paul appealed to his conscience in Acts 23, verse 1, when Paul was before the Sanhedrin. He said this, Paul, looking intently at the council, the Sanhedrin, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. So Paul didn't mind appealing to his confidence. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, he said this, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. So Paul appealed to his conscience all the time. We go to verse 17 in Acts 24. Paul continues, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. This means after several years after he had been left Jerusalem, which is about 25 years. Remember, he went up to persecute the Jews in Damascus. I don't know. Jesus died in AD 30 or maybe 33. It's a dispute on that. But let's say somewhere in the early 30s, he goes up to Damascus. We know now that it's at the end of the third journey is 58, which most people say is 58. So what is that? 30, say 35 to 58. That's about 20, 23, 24, 25 years. John Gill says it's been 25 years. Most of that time, he's been among the Gentiles. He would go to the synagogues where they'd kick him out, you know, and then he would go to the Gentiles. So he had been in Jerusalem in a long time. So after several years, sounds more like many years to me, but anyway, 25 years to me is a good while. But after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. Of course, that's the reference to the Jerusalem poor offering, which Paul had spent so much time on his third journey collecting from Macedonia and uh, Achaia and Asia Minor. This is the only reference in Acts, the only explicit reference in Acts, referring to that collection that was so precious to Paul, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Paul, however, did mention it much in his epistles, for example, in Romans 15, 25 through 26. Paul says this to the Romans, But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia. I have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That was He wrote that on the second journey from Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. He mentioned the letter, he mentions the poor collection again in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So you see, that was a big deal to Paul. And he mentions it here. This is what I came to Jerusalem for, not to start a riot but to give money to the poor Jews of Jerusalem. Poor Christian Jews, but they were still Jews. And again, does that sound like somebody getting ready to start a riot? Now, he was going to present offerings as well as give alms when he got to Jerusalem. He says in verse 17, what kind of offerings? For himself, because of Pentecost? Probably not. Because of the Nazarite vow he was participating in, I think, is what Paul was referring to. Acts 21, verse 26. Then Paul took the men, that's the four men, and the next day, the four men who were finishing their vow up, 
And the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. We go to verses 18 and 19 of Acts 24. Paul continues our mid-sentence here, so let me back up and read verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, verse 18, in which they found me occupied in the temple. In other words, hey, that's what they saw. Not starting a riot, I was offering offerings. Having been purified, Paul continues, without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who sought to who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Now, what Paul is saying is, hey, you don't have firsthand evidence here. Now, all these Jews who are coming and accusing me, they have hearsay. These Asian Jews said, he's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against the law. He's speaking against the Jews. But that's what they said, and they're not here. Where are they? If you want the evidence, you don't go for hearsay. You go for firsthand evidence, and they're not here. They ought to have been present. Paul should have been a lawyer. He, was, he did a good job of defending himself. In fact, by the very absence of those Jews in Asia, who could have been some of whom, if they followed Paul all the way from Ephesus, all the way across Asia Minor, all the way to Jerusalem to harass Paul, surely they could have gone the mere 70 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea to testify in the case against Paul before Felix, but they didn't do so. What does that indicate? It means that the Jews could not substantiate their charges against Paul, as the NIV Study Bible points out. We go to verse 20 in Acts 24. Paul continues, Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. In other words, hey, these guys have first-hand testimony of what went on in Jerusalem. The Jews from Asia who started this whole thing, they're not here. But these men were here. Let them testify what I did wrong. Of course, Paul knew he had them by the proverbial gonads, he knew that the Jews were not going to be able to testify against him credibly about anything that he had done. Tell me what misdeed I did. Now, there was one thing he had done that might have got him in trouble is when he called the high priest a whitewashed wall before the Sanhedrin, and then he quoted a verse from Exodus saying, you shall not speak evil of your authorities, or some verse to that effect. But if they had accused him of that, he could have easily defended that and say, look, I was standing before a kangaroo court that could have killed me. I had to be rescued by Claudius Lysias when they laid violent hands on me. And besides, the high priest had ordered me to be struck on the mouth when I called him a whitewashed wall, and I hadn't even had a chance to give my defense yet. So they probably were not going to bring that up. So Paul says, okay, put up or shut up. Burden of proof's on you. Tell, prove to the court here before Lysias, uh, excuse me, before Felix, prove what I've done wrong. Verse 21, and we'll finish it up, of Acts 24. Well, I'm mid-sentence again. Let me go back to 20. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, verse 21, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. Now, this is the second time Paul's mentioned the resurrection of the dead, and so I am convinced that he is once again trying to divide the Sadducees and the Pharisees, so I am therefore convinced that the delegation of the Jews that came from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to Felix in Caesarea, that delegation consisted part, partly of Sadducees and partly of Pharisees, Sadducees not believing in the resurrection of the dead, Pharisees believing in, in it. And therefore, Paul is trying to stir up dissension between them, and he's using his defensive tactic that worked so well five or six days earlier before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The NIV Study Bible agrees with that. They say Paul, once again, is using his technique of dividing his opponents, 
Paul's also doing another thing. He's appealing to the majority opinion, which is always nice when you are a persecuted minority. He's saying, because the general belief of Israel as a whole believed in the resurrection of the dead, because the Sadducees, remember, were a minority. They were a powerful minority, but they were still a minority. So this made Paul appear to be a normal guy. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just, yeah, I'm just preaching the resurrection of the dead. So what? Why should there be a riot? Because I'm talking about the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. Everybody believes in the resurrection of the dead. So what's the deal? This appeal to the resurrection of the dead would also recall to mind the members of that delegation of the Sanhedrin that the Pharisees had tried to defend Paul. Hey, maybe this guy did have a vision, if you recall. He said that. Maybe maybe Paul maybe Paul did have a vision. Maybe we ought to be careful before you condemn this guy. And Paul's bringing, trying to bring that to their minds again. Hey, some of you Sanhedrin guys said I was innocent. Paul did an excellent job of defending himself here. He should have been a lawyer. Thank God he wasn't. But, I mean, he could have been a lawyer, I believe. All right, we're finished with Acts chapter 24, verse 21. We will see how Felix, in the next audio, we will see how Felix, Felix reacts to Paul's defense. We will see that he kept him under house arrest for two years. That had nothing to do with his belief that he was innocent or guilty or not. But we'll take that up in the next audio and finish up Acts 24. Hope you listened to that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.